YouTube channel, Hebrews is not about beer or tea. Hebrews is a letter from the New Testament, actually, and it's more correct to say it reads more like a sermon by someone we don't really know, but given specifically to the Jewish Christians. And that might sound weird for some people, like how can you get a Jewish Christian? It's like saying a Hindu Buddhist. But actually in those times, um, Christians were classed as a type of Judaism. So we would see just the same as we'd see different denominations today. So the Jewish followers of Jesus still referred to themselves as Jewish, just like the Messianic Jews do today. So this letter was a reminder to them to keep growing in their faith, not to return back to their old habits. They didn't need any of the rituals or follow the habits or whatever they were doing there before Jesus paid that price for their sin. So you might think that they were being a bit forgetful for returning to their past ways, but who's never returned to an old habit? When I used to, after I left, working at school, I used to drive there by accident when I was taking my son to work, which was along the same sort of way. But I'd turn off as if I was going to school and then just be really frustrated with myself. And you, you know, so when you're used to something, doing something in a certain way, it's such an easy thing to do to just fall right back into it. John has taken us though past these past few weeks um, through the first three books of Hebrews, his first message was not going back. So we're facing forward, we're leaving the past behind. And his second message was staying power and we're keeping focused and staying the course. And today we're going to be talking about entering his rest and coming boldly to the throne of grace. But there's a bit of a trend happening, if you've noticed. There's movement. We're not really standing still, are we? So now, before you pull me up in the comments saying that, you know, rest is sort of being still, it's got nothing to do in this part of Hebrews with putting your feet up and chilling out. It's about entering the promised rest of God. And the Hebrews would have immediately, they would have got that reference to entering the promised land immediately. It was a mirror image. For them, this rest meant the end of wandering, worrying, waiting, and just as they went into that place that God had provided for them. So in fact, I'm really excited that as I've been going over my notes and reading through Hebrews, there's been all this movement in it. It's a spiritual journey. There's lots of leave behind and go forward type statements. And I've never really noticed it before, but it seems at each point there's an increased momentum. And just a little spoiler alert, by the time we get to the end, we're running the race. We're running with endurance, the race set before us. So we're gonna just, you know, we're gonna look at where we're at in Hebrews right now and we can see that God is strengthening us slowly and steadily. And just like weightlifter, like a weightlifter, we have to start slowly, we have to build our strength. If I walked into a gym and picked up weights that somebody else had just put down, I'd hurt myself. And I've done it before, you know, if I picked up something that I'm not strong enough to carry, I, I would hurt myself. 
And in the same way, I'm not a runner. My son's babe are running every, every day. And they say to me, mom, go and run. And I wish I could do it. But actually, every time I've tried, I've hurt myself. My ankles hurt. And I, I'm, obviously I'm doing it wrong. But with runners, I'm fully aware that after the initial push off the blocks and getting into your own lane, there might come a point where you feel like you'll never ever reach the goal. It, it's really easy to lose heart and that might affect your motivation. And that's just what the writer of Hebrews shows us, that in the comparison with the Israelites coming out from Egypt, there came a point where faith to get to the promised land seemed just too much for them. And they lost that focus. They lost that initial urge to get there. They moaned and they grumbled. And then guess what? Only two people and their families from that generation actually did enter the promised land. And the writer is using that and he wants the church to learn from it. So Hebrews chapter four, verses one and two says this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And the message version puts it this way. For as long then as that promise of resting in him pulls us onto God's goal for us, we need to be careful that we're not disqualified. We receive the same promises as those people in the wilderness, but the promises didn't do them a bit of good because they didn't receive the promises with faith. If we believe though, we'll experience that state of resting, but not if we don't have faith. So look closely at what prevents entering into his promised rest. Division, disunity, lack of faith in God's word, not uniting with those who did have faith. The Greek word used for rest in this and the following passages and verses is katapausis. I had to listen to how it was said to be able to say that properly. And it, it, that has two meanings. The first is, number one, a putting to rest, such as a calming of the winds, the, the Bible says. And it, number two, a resting place, such as heaven, to be with God after the toils and trials of life on earth are ended. So his rest then means that the chaos around us is calmed, or that we find peace that passes all understanding, you know, as, as uh, you know, despite the chaos around us. So I'd like both. So there are a couple of things essential to entering that rest. The first, if you're taking notes is, one, we must be united by faith. And this does not mean that we need to be clones of each other. We don't have to blindly agree with everything another Christian says. Uh, it's not about agreeing with an opinion. We need to actually read the Bible for ourselves and understand it for ourselves. But unity in the faith is non-negotiable. And not only that, it says united by faith with those who listened. And this could mean those people who were around with Jesus, they heard him teach, they wrote down how he taught, what he said, what he did, and they listened to him and they wrote it down for us. Or it could mean being around someone who 
who is clearly has the gift of wisdom. And the more I look at it though, the more I believe it's the first one. Um, because what is more unifying than being in agreement with the Gospels? Those people who were there, those who listened, they recorded it. It's the absolute basis of our faith. We must be united by the Gospel and grow in faith like the disciples did. So the Bible's clear about divisions and it addresses divisions between believers. We've got to be united, but we can't allow others to divide us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, verse 23 to 24, um, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Look at what, what Jesus is saying is more important. Actually, be unified, reconcile, and then you can, you know, go and offer your gift. And Paul puts it much more bluntly in his letter to Titus in uh, chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. And he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. God wants you to come before him, but don't even think about it before you put things right with someone you've fallen out with. Jesus said, we need to keep on forgiving, but stay away from those who draw you away from others and from the gospel. So Romans 16, verse 17, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. He's very clear to avoid those kind of people. And so when, you, when we've taken our notes, and number one in entering God's rest, unity. Unity is important to God. It's where we receive the blessing. It needs to be important to us too. The second way to enter into God's rest is by obedience. To obey God is to enter his rest. We can relax. God's got this. Don't make excuses. Don't look for a way out. It's not, you know, it's not in our nature to do that sometimes, but we've just got to relax and leave it with God. Hebrews 4 verse 6 says people could not enter God's rest because of disobedience and this is what it says. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, his rest and some who formerly received the good news failed to enter, enter because of disobedience. And obedience, it seems to become a bit of an offensive word to people. People react really strangely to the word obedience or obey. It's got negative, restrictive connotations. And we, act, we, we sort of react as if we've been enslaved or forced against our will or treated like toddlers or, or even pets when we talk about obedience. And the, but the dictionary definition of obedience is this. It's compliance with an order, a request or law, or submission to another's authority. So just like that's in him, submission to another's authority. So just think back a few moments to your reaction to the word obedience. 
I wonder if this is a, a good way to measure how proud or how humble we are before God. Does he have authority in your life? Have we submitted to his will? Some people, they might see that as a controlling word, obedience. Maybe they've not grasped the great mercy that God has shown us in our salvation. Some people might think obedience is a manipulative word, but maybe they need to revisit the beautiful grace of God. The truth is, as we get closer to our relationship with God, his will becomes our delight. Obedience is easy when you're on the same page. It's still a choice. So look at the Bible. God is for us. He wants the very best for us. And bad or evil or wicked people, they've manipulated that word obedience in the Bible and used it to control people. That's what people are scared of. And they've tried to control people to their way of thinking, even in the church, really sad. But when we obey God, our lives have more freedom than you can ever imagine. When we're obedient to God, our Father, who knows us better than we know ourselves, we'll realise that his plans and purposes for us are much better than we can think up for ourselves. The failure in the wilderness to trust God led to fear and disobedience. So let's just read a little bit further from verse 10 to 13. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We can enter God's rest and relax. The works don't get us anywhere. Faith and obedience do. We can rest in the knowledge that the only thing we need to strive for is to enter his rest because only then we'll be fully surrendered to whatever amazing thing that God has for us to do. And Jesus, when he spoke, he talked about abiding in God, abiding, and that's the same sort of thing. We've talked about surrender loads lately in our preaches and, and with what we've been doing, and it's a habit that we need to form. And it, it goes on to say in verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to, to whom we must give an account. I love that verse. I love the verse about the word of God being living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It sounds exciting, but what a description piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a bit scary. It goes on to say we're all exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows our heart, whether we like it or we don't. One day we're going to stand before God and give that account. None of us are good, not one. Think of the nicest and kindest and loveliest person that you know. They're not good enough. We can't measure up to holiness. Only Jesus can do that. God is holy and his presence is too holy for our flesh to cope with. We'd just shrivel up and die. But for Jesus, praise God he sent his son to cover us. 
In the Old Testament, God sent up, set up this temporary measure where once a year the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice to cover his own sins and the sins of the people. Jewish people still observe this. It's, it's called Yom Kippur. It's the holiest day of the calendar. But since the temple was destroyed, it's now observed without the sacrifice. But like I said, it's the most holiest day of the Jewish cal calendar. Just as the high priest would kill and cover the sin of the people with the blood of the sacrifice, it had to be done year after year after year after year. So it wasn't ever fully solved. This part of Hebrews explains that Jesus became not just a high priest, but the great high priest. And he not only covered, but he actually died to cancel our sins, past, present and future. So let's just look at Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest that's unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The New King James Version says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of God. That's amazing. And it doesn't mean let's be cocky and saunter up to God's throne. It means that we can be assured that we can go to God's throne, we can approach his throne and we're not gonna die because Jesus paid the price for us. He obtained the mercy. Even Jesus, he was tempted. It says he was tempted as we were, as we are but he didn't give in to sin. Temptation isn't sin, acting it out is. Don't let your mind play tricks on you by making you feel ashamed over the temptation. Just don't dwell on it, don't revisit it, don't entertain it, don't allow it to become an intention. Think or do something else, fix your heart on God. But we can draw near to that throne of grace, God's throne, and receive mercy. That Mercy is first. It's the forgiveness that we did not earn. The mercy where God now says, I'm not against you. I don't hate you. Even though you sinned, Jesus took the punishment. That's God's mercy. It tells us that we're not going to die. The fact that no matter what we've done or will do, God forgives and accepts us because it's been paid for. That is mercy. And then because of his mercy, we find his grace, that unearned, unmerited favour of God that says, I'm for you, I love you, no matter what. We've done nothing to deserve that, but his grace says, I want to help you succeed. I have plans for you beyond your wildest dreams. I will help you. But this is all because of Jesus, revealed in Hebrews as our great high priest, who went before God for us with his own innocent blood. <clears throat> Hebrews 5 verse 5 to 6 says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order 
of Melchizedek. And these are verses that have been quoted from Psalms and Jesus is a fulfillment of these prophecies. God appointed him as a high priest, a priest forever. I was really shocked when, when John asked me to speak from the, the verses about Melchizedek. I've been actually looking into Melchizedek, the person, um, in the last few weeks, even before we even started on our journey in Hebrews. He's always been a figure that stood out for me, and maybe it's because he's shrouded in mystery. But this phrase about Jesus as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek is repeated over and over and over in the book of Hebrews. It's about six or seven times it refers to it. But who's Melchizedek? We don't really know anything about him. You know, other than he was also a priest and he was also a king, the king of Salem. Salem meant peace. It's where the Jews get their word shalom. It's actually where Jerusalem is. Um, it became later known from Salem to Jerusalem. He was the person Abraham, the founding father of the Jews, gave his tithe to. In fact, it's the first ever tithe in the Bible. He must have been someone that Abraham really looked up to and revered, or he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have given his tithe to him. He was a priest and he was a king. But there's no other information for him. No genealogy, we've got no information about his parents or his descendants, and that's really odd for the Bible that's full of genealogy for priests and for kings. They usually have them in the Bible. But he seems to have no beginning and he doesn't seem to have any end. He just appears, he gets the tithe from, from uh, Abraham, blesses him. But the Bible says Melchizedek was a priest forever. This information and the absence of those important features, they've got lots of people, scholars and theologians, thinking that Melchizedek is a theophany. Simply put, a pre-incarnate pre Christ. And further on in chapter 7, the writer heavily points to that. So why is this important for us now? Why am I even talking about this? It's because he wants us to know that just as the high priest went before God for the people to obtain mercy, Jesus was already appointed as our great high priest and has obtained mercy and grace for us. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 5 verse 11 to 14. About this, this Melchizedek, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's really quite strong. How would you like to be described as dull of hearing? The people were getting a little bit of a telling off, I think. They'd found themselves a nice little comfortable spot and they'd camped out. They'd stopped growing. They'd stopped moving forward. They were not training anymore. They were spiritually immature. 
they'd got their favourite little verses and their favourite little things they'd got themselves into their routines and they weren't changing and that was that. And actually, that meant they were not just standing still, they were slipping back. And verse 13 says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So to be mature, we must become skilled in the word, not just our favourite bits or our happy verses. We need to read that, read that word, read the Bible, put it into practice. Sometimes we get really comfortable, other things distract us and we stop learning and that happens, but it, it can't last. We've got to carry on, we've got to press on. Verse 14 says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, and listen to this, by constant practice. And why do they do that? To distinguish good from evil. So it's a skill. Our training regime is to read the word, pray, ask for discernment. Doesn't mean discernment, doesn't mean seeing demons everywhere. It means being able to distinguish good from evil. We need to know what good is first, and that comes with reading the Bible. Obedience comes from reading that word as we get to know the heart of God. And it's not a forced obedience, but it's a willingness to do the right thing. It's a bit of a subtle difference, isn't there? I've got sons, and the eldest, he, he would read books, he grew up loving books, and he'd absorb all the information, you know, and he'd, he'd read now if he had the time. But the younger two, not keen. If I ask them why they don't read a book, they'd just say, I don't read. But they're not illiterate. They have the faces in a phone all day long. So they can read. Uh, they just choose not to read an actual book. Books don't hold any interest for them. If this is you, and you know, just like the analogy with weights, start small. A Bible app or something on your phone to send you a verse every day. But don't stop there, progress to a reading plan or you, uh, the YouVersion app, that's a really good one for that. And then just keep going until you're reading a little bit more and a little bit more and I promise after a little while you'll get hungry for more. And this is how to grow up and be mature, no longer being spoon fed by other people and their interpretation. The reason, it takes, the reason for it, it takes us right back to where we began. Hebrews 6 verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, and look at this, inherit the promises. It's the same as the beginning, moving into the promise, the rest of God. So we need to be, number one, unified in the faith, not divided. And number two, we need to be obedient which gets easier as we get to know God's heart. It's easier when you have that relationship with him and we get to know him, you know, by reading, don't we, as well, and praying. Number three, we understand the magnitude of what Jesus, the great high priest, did for us by obtaining the mercy and the grace. And number four, we need to train ourselves by reading the word and praying. So let's just pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Help me in those areas where I need to move forward and where I need to train harder. I pray, Lord God, that you just uh, cover us all, Lord, 
with whatever it is that we need to do. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, and we just praise you, Lord, for, for obtaining that for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, if you have, if you've read this and you want to, if you've watched this and you want to know more about uh, what we've been talking about and about the what Jesus has done for us, then just drop us a, a comment or a message, a messenger. If you want prayer, let us know. We want to pray for you. Have a really great week. Thank you for listening and see you soon.